think the whole point of the arts is that it's about people continuing to grow every day of their life, you know, and that is absolutely vital. I mean, I, I remember, for me, one of the most important phrases I ever read was when Einstein was asked about his talents. And he said, I had no particular talents, just an insatiable curiosity. And it's interesting that he identified that as far more important than his other talents. And I think that's absolutely true. And the arts has to play a part in all of us having an insatiable curiosity, wanting to know more, wanting to understand more, wanting to explore all the time. Yet the danger of a lot of life and a lot of the way the institutions work and even things like subscription series and all of the way that music and the arts are marketed is that you tend to be marketing into boxes. You're actually marketing into people's known likes, which means that in a way you're not actually tantalizing them with things where they could explore and grow and, and test themselves. And so I think a lot of what we do is about having a view that for them to have a fulfilled life, everybody should continue to grow throughout their life. And to do that, you have to have a spirit of inquiry and a spirit of exploration and a spirit of curiosity. So we feel the arts should and needs to play a central role in that. That was Executive and Artistic Director of Carnegie Hall, Clive Gillinson. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Clive Gillinson came to Carnegie Hall in 2005. As Executive and Artistic Director, he's responsible for developing the artistic concepts for the hall, which presents almost 200 performances each season on its three stages. That would be enough for most people, but Gillinson is motivated by the conviction that the arts should be central to society and available to everyone. To that end, he's created festivals, music scholarships, education programs, and a project in partnership with the Juilliard School of Music and the New York City Public School System, which places some of the best young musicians in public school classrooms. It's a notable achievement, yet typical of Gillinson, who's also forged alliances with the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Guggenheim, and the Museum of Modern Art in various citywide projects. Clive Gillinson came to Carnegie Hall from the London Symphony Orchestra, where he had first been a cellist before moving to the position of managing director. Under his leadership, the LSO went from near collapse to an innovative artistic force that reached people of all ages in and out of concert halls. Gillinson was much appreciated and much respected. In fact, he's the only orchestra manager ever to be honored with a knighthood. So when I spoke with Clive Gillinson in his New York City office, I wanted to know why he chose to make the move to Carnegie Hall. I'd been offered a number of jobs in other places, and I loved the LSO. That was, in a sense, my family. I'd been there for a long time. I'd been part of the orchestra. And, and of course, my actual family and everybody were in the UK and in London. So I, I wasn't looking for another job. I, you know, I didn't want to move. I mean, obviously, to move to another country when your kids are living in the UK. I mean, these are all huge decisions. But Carnegie Hall is different from any other music organization in the world. And so the interesting thing was, for the first time, I felt here was something I really should do because 
Carnegie Hall, I think, can make a greater contribution to the future of music and the impact music can have on people's lives than any other institution. And if that's what your life is about, which my life had been about, trying to make that contribution, you can make a much greater contribution here than anywhere else. So that was why I felt it was irresistible, frankly. I mean, I wasn't being offered the job initially, but even just to have the conversations, why I thought I should have the conversations. But the interesting thing, it was the first time all of my family all said, Dad, if you get offered it, there's no way you can say no. Why is it that Carnegie Hall has that position in the world of art? Well, firstly, because I think it's the greatest concert hall there is in the world, it's in New York, It's become the iconic destination for every artist everywhere in the world. You know, now that is partly about the history, but it's partly about the fact that it's such a great concert hall in New York. So whatever it is, it's created a history that means there's so much momentum and there's so much possibility about what it does. Now, the other dimension that is vital is that it's agnostic. It can work with anybody and everybody. There's nobody who doesn't want to work with Carnegie Hall. If you're running an orchestra, you can't work with other orchestras. Every orchestra wants its own identity. If you're running an opera house, you can't work with other opera houses because every opera house wants its own identity. I mean, you may do some co-productions, but there's nothing you're going to do in a major way as a group of opera houses. I mean, the interesting thing about Carnegie Hall, because as well it has no resident orchestra, is it means it is completely free to have relationships with everybody. You know, and that goes outside music as well as just within music. Everybody wants to work with Carnegie Hall within music. And you even get the Grand Old Opry celebrating its 100th birthday at Carnegie Hall, not in its own building. So it gives you a sense of what it means. But on top of that, we don't have a resident orchestra. And that, again, means that you've got the space and the ability to plan in totally free way. You know, you have a blank canvas, which gives you all the scope you want to develop, all the ideas. If you've got a resident orchestra, by definition, at the core of your music programme lies the resident orchestra. That has lots of positives, but equally, it also creates limitations. We have no limitations. You began your musical career as a cellist. How did you move to the front office from the orchestra pit? Totally by mistake. I mean, interesting enough, I'd never wanted to be involved in management. It had never interested me. I wanted to be a musician. And when I got married, my wife and I actually had as our best man, or I had as my best man, the guy who was running the LSO at that time. And I remember us sitting after after we got married and everything, and the, and the four of us were all out to dinner together. And I remember saying to him, I cannot imagine why you want to do that job. You know, I was, needless to say, still a cellist at that time. And so... Just happened by chance. It was one of those things I wasn't seeking it. If it hadn't been for the fact that the orchestra got into terrible financial problems and the manager was terminated, or not, he wasn't terminated, the job was terminated, <laughs> but, and they couldn't find a manager. The, the orchestra was pretty well bankrupt. And I think people didn't want to come to the job. And it was just at a time as well when the Arts Council was looking at how many London orchestras are going to be. So there were lots of things that made it really quite challenging. So they thought they'd just get a player to go in for three months. Um, In fact, they asked two players. There was the guy who was the vice chairman of the board, and then there was me, and I was finance director at that time, um, which was only an oversight role. I wasn't running the finances. And they asked each of us to go in for three months whilst they looked. At the end of that six months, I mean, he did his three months, I did my three months. At the end of that six months, they still couldn't find a real manager. And they then offered me, you know, would I stay on? So I said, yes, I'll stay on. But after another three months, they offered me the job. 
And I said, no, because after this period, there's no way you know if I'm the right person for the job, and there's no way if I know that I want to actually go into management. So, you know, I said, I'll keep my job open for a year. I'll do it for a year, and at the end of the year, you'll know if I'm the right person, I'll know if I want to do it. That's what happened. At the end of the year, they did offer me the job again, and by then, I loved it. I mean, in the early days, it was sheer hell, <laughs> you know, because, I mean, the orchestra was in terrible financial problems. It was in danger of going under. I knew nothing about management, and at the same time, we were having, we just had twins. So, you know, there were a lot of sleepless nights, too. <laughs> so there was plenty of reasons why it wasn't attractive at the beginning. <laughs> but, you know, by the time I'd done it for a year and we were really beginning to pull it into shape, it was, and during that period, we'd had to meet with the Arts Council, who were our major funder, along with the City of London. And the Arts Council, in wanting to reduce the number of orchestras, had said to us, you have to eliminate your accumulated deficit within three years. And years, years, years later, somebody who was in their music department said to me, you realize that when they put that report in, they said there is no way the LSO will succeed to do that. It's not possible in that time. They won't succeed, and so it will help to solve our London Orchestra's problem. In fact, we did it in two years. And the time that they told me about that was when we became the best funded of all the London Orchestra's. So we'd gone from being the one they thought would disappear to the one they were supporting more than anybody else because they really believed in what we were doing. So, I mean, it was a, it was a long journey. Oh, yes. And a scary one at times. You know, you're known for being mindful of and respectful of tradition and at the same time really moving organizations forward. That is a challenging and I would imagine a difficult balancing act you do. For some reason it's not. In as much as great institutions have a phenomenal history, they have roots, and I've always been a believer fundamentally that our job is about evolution it's not about revolution you're not trying to kill the past you're trying to grow out of the past and the intrinsic nature of your organization and the roots and the culture and all the dimension the values I mean all of these are built up over history and if you want to be something else you should go somewhere else I mean you know if you want to grow an organization you grow it out of what it is don't suddenly decide, unless it's a catastrophe. So number one is, I think it's the way you have to approach it, evolution rather than revolution. The other side is, I suppose, you know, the thing I just love is challenge, it's exploration, it's actually coming up with ideas about how you can grow and how you can transform your role in society so that you are making a genuine contribution to the society in which you live. And I think that's somewhere where you involve everybody. It's important that it's something that really becomes part of the culture of what the organization is. And I remember when I started at Carnegie Hall. I mean, Carnegie Hall was quite risk-averse then. I, th I mean, it was unbelievably good. It was very successful. So I wasn't, it wasn't like the LSO where one was coming in to save it. On the contrary, I mean, it was really successful. But on the other hand, it was quite inward-looking in many, many ways. And it tended not to work with other organizations. It tended to be, you know, very much a world unto itself and a wonderful world unto itself. You know, and it was quite interesting how the feeling I got from the board, I think because of having had difficult times, was please be innovative, but don't change anything. <laughs> you know, so it was curious. They were so scared of change. You know, change had got a bad name. So it was an incredible institution. It was very well run. But the other thing that I found interesting was when I started and we started to explore new ideas, how everybody was worried about did we have the capacity in terms of our staff and our team 
to be able to take on more things because everybody said we're working so hard already. If you now look at who we are and what we are now and what senior staff and the team are actually managing, it is so much more than they thought they couldn't manage beyond before. So I think everybody gets excited and everybody gets energized about the fact that you're moving. So I think there's something very energizing about innovation, about changing your role, developing your role, growing, and in really exciting ways. And and I think the biggest piece about the direction we've moved in is about becoming a really outward-looking organization rather than inward. And, and a lot of great institutions do get stuck, you know, because they get stuck on thinking what's best for the institution. My view is that's never the right question. And I remember when I started, you know, often people would say, what's best for Carnegie Hall? And I always said, it's not the right question. The only question we should ask is what's best for the impact we can have on people's lives through music. If we answer that, then we'll know what's best for Carnegie Hall. And so it's the whole thing of getting people to look at our role in society is is what's driven the change. Um, But it's also the fact that you know, when I came and, you know, we started developing these ideas for big festivals, we wanted a, a whole cross-cultural context. It wasn't just about all the best of music, but really creating a cross-cultural context for it. And everybody said New York organizations don't work together. So I went to see MoMA and Guggenheim and all these places, and they all said, wonderful, we'd love to work with you. So it was just this assumption about the fact that everybody operates institutionally But the minute you actually start having conversations about what can we all do together, how can we all make the lives of New Yorkers and the people that are our community better, everybody loves to have that conversation. So, you know, you also have sometimes to deal with perceptions that people assume are correct but actually aren't at all. In many ways, you've taken Carnegie Hall out of Carnegie Hall and brought it into New York City in a, in a more profound way, in, in different venues, making partnerships with different arts organizations, through education, into the public schools. We have. I mean, and it's a we, it's not me. And it's absolutely true. I mean, when you look at the things we've done, the big festivals, we work with a lot of the greatest institutions in the city to create experiences for all New Yorkers. The Academy, which is our fellowship program for the best postgraduate young musicians in America, which is half about extraordinary performance but the other half is about educating the great musicians of the future to be people who put something back into society and and really give back as well so those were the first two projects we did but when you look at now creating the national youth orchestra you look at the fact that we now have 66 alumni of the academy who are now traveling the world we're helping to develop projects around the world and they've been to mexico and india and south africa and germany and spain and so on so we're having conversations Everybody we talk to, in a sense, we get into the conversation about not only what can Carnegie Hall do for music, but what can we all, if we work together, you know, what can we do that is greater than the sum of the parts that means we're all making a contribution to the future of music? And we're not thinking institutionally, we're thinking about people's lives. And that's what changes it all. I want to backtrack a little bit because you touched on a number of the recent initiatives, and I really do want to talk about them in a little more depth. And let's begin with the Academy. Mm -hmm. And that's a partnership between the Vile Music Institute, which is under the Carnegie Hall umbrella, 
Juilliard, and the New York City school system. Describe what it is that the Academy does. Let me take it even back a tiny bit okay. as to why we thought we needed to create it. Please. Um, which was when I arrived, somebody gave me the figure, which I think was correct, that there are 15,000 graduates from music colleges in America every year and 150 jobs in orchestras. So that was one piece. Another piece was the lack of music in the schools. And another piece was, if you're going to look at careers in music for students, it's not really just about going into orchestras. I mean, people are going to have to be much more creative, much more entrepreneurial, develop much more portfolio careers. I mean, that was my whole view of, you know, looking at the profession. And the, the last piece was that standards are incredibly high in America. I mean, there's nowhere that the standards of musicians coming out of music colleges is higher. So you had this phenomenal resource with people almost seeing it as a problem rather than a possibility. And so I came up with this idea of the Academy, and that is to really have a two-year fellowship where you train the very best postgraduate musicians in the country. Not only do they do phenomenal concerts as various ensembles and you bring in the best conductors and everything else, but you also then train them in education and community engagement. So I went to see Joseph Polisi. I mean, I'd heard great things about him. I didn't really know him. But I thought if we could get the greatest performance institution and the greatest music education institution together... Which is Juilliard. Um, which is Juilliard. would be even stronger to develop this together. And the whole point of that was we could have done it on our own, but the key to a program like that is you've got to attract the very best people in the country. Otherwise, there isn't a point doing it. And so Joseph loved the idea. We both agreed we would do it. I went to see Joel Klein, who was then the Chancellor for Education. He loved it and said, I'm in. You know, I'll do it. So that's why it's got this endless name of the Academy, a program of Carnegie Hall, the Juilliard School and the Wild Music Institute in association with the New York City Department of Education. If you can say that in one breath, you're doing well. Uh, Never but, mind putting it on a business card. <laughs> yeah. So that was how that came about. And what we're trying to do is create a group of musicians for the future whose lives will be about performing at the highest possible level, but just as much their lives will be about putting something back into society, you know, in lots of ways. In the academy, they do a lot of work in the New York City public school system, but now where we're working with the alumni and setting up residencies around the world for them so they can transfer skills in lots of other places as well. You know, there's huge demand. And so, you know, what is wonderful is with the skill set and the sort of people they are, they formed themselves into a group called the Declassified. And now we're going to be working with them as an ensemble. So, I mean, what is lovely is to see all these people who've developed this skill set actually feeling we want to work as a community to change the world together. That's a really lovely thing to see coming out of it. I want very much to talk about the international festivals that began in 2007 with Berlin in mm -hmm. Lights. Mm -hmm. What was the thinking behind that? Well, in a way that was slightly about using an opportunity because it was an idea I'd talked about before I came in because from the time I was appointed to the time I started was over a year because I wanted to complete what I felt I needed to do at the LSO before I left. Two of my kids, my twins, were leaving university, so I wasn't going to leave before they'd completed university. So for, there were two main reasons why Carnegie Hall very kindly allowed me to have a year before I started um, from the time of the appointment. And in that time, not the academy, but the festivals was something I knew I wanted to do, partly to create some really big picture concepts and partly to try and create journeys of exploration for audiences across the whole 
plateau of culture, you know, all dimensions of culture. I just thought it's really important. I mean, the whole point of the arts is people grow and explore. It's not about keeping uh, a narrow band where you, you go to the things you know and love and you don't explore outside. So it was a concept, and in fact, even before I came, we'd agreed that was the direction we were going to go in, and we agreed that Berlin, because we were having already planned in the books, was a significant residency by the Berlin Philharmonic. So all of us thought in practical terms with the short timeline, Berlin was the place to start because it gave us at least part of the materials to put a festival together. You know, we then started the conversations with lots of other institutions. We actually appointed somebody to manage and run festivals. So that's why Berlin, to begin with, because it was a very practical issue. Then looking further forward, I mean, we wanted to celebrate things within America. So asking Jesse Norman to curate a festival which was all about really celebrating the contribution African-American music has made to the US, but to world music in general. And it was interesting when I went to see Jessie to ask her if she'd be willing to do it. She just said, this is what I've been waiting all my life to do. It was lovely. She really threw herself into it, fantastic. And we knew we wanted to do China. We felt it would be really interesting to juxtapose China and Japan next to each other on the basis that people kind of assume they're very similar. In point of fact, they're unbelievably different. And we thought it would be really interesting to explore those together. And now we've got lots of plans in the future as well for other festivals. And this year it's going to be Voices from Latin America. This year it's Voices from Latin America. And again, I think one of the things all of us have found most interesting is firstly the huge influences and the huge contribution that both Latin America and African American music have made to US culture, but as I say, world culture as well. But secondly, they're very different in terms of how they live within their own cultures. When you look at classical music in particular, but a lot of the, you know, what are often called wrongly, I think, the high arts, like classical music, they can be quite challenging. There's often a sense that if you don't know enough about them, you're not going to enjoy it or it's going to be inaccessible. The interesting thing about Latin, most Latin American culture, about African American culture, is it's for everybody. You know, it's not defined as high culture or pop culture or low culture or anything. I mean, it's good culture or it's good music or bad music. You know, as Duke Ellington yes, said. <laughs> and it's really important. I think that's an incredibly important fundamental issue. And if we can use that to inform the way people look at complex culture and, and actually ensure that you don't build up barriers, that in fact you pull all the barriers down and you make it something that really is for everybody, then that's very important. And when one looks at everything we do with the Wild Music Institute, our education programs, we never talk about classical music. It's music. And classical music has its place with pop and jazz and everything else. And we're not telling kids it's different from the others. They'll be exploring stuff where, you know, there'll be songs they know, there'll be all sorts of things, there may be hip-hop, whatever it happens to be. And within that context, they'll be hearing some Mozart, but nobody's saying this is different. It's all part of music. And, and so I think there's big lessons to be learned uh, that we're trying to translate into other things we do. When we think of Carnegie Hall, we think of a hall, but in fact there are three different halls within Carnegie Hall, which also gives you flexibility and a way to play within the hall. Yes. I mean, as a resource, the three halls are phenomenal. The big hall, which is 2,800 seats, which is huge for a symphonic hall. I mean, most are not much more than 2,000. You know, then Zankel Hall, which is 600, which only opened in 2003 because the original concept with the three halls the big one and the small one were brilliant and as good as anything anywhere. And the middle hall didn't work at all. 
and so it became a cinema, as you probably know. And it was only in 2003 it came back to the original three-hall concept. So, yes, that has transformed Carnegie Hall's ability to work with every sort of music and, you know, make Carnegie Hall much more part of everybody's life. But I think hand-in-hand with that, you know, as we were talking about earlier, so much of what we do now is about, in a sense using the walls to break down the walls. You know, the walls are the reason it's so great, but then how do we make ourselves part of everybody's life and how do we make ourselves part of the whole music scene and hopefully be a catalyst for really important developments overall and changing the role of music in society. So, I mean, I haven't counted, but my guess is we probably do just as much outside the hall as as we do in the hall now in terms of reaching people. And you also have a program, Musical Connections. Musical Connections is a wonderful program. We only started that relatively recently. Um, But that is all about reaching out into society, into places where people wouldn't normally have access to music and where you can really change lives as well. So, you know, we work in the prison system, we work in youth at risk centres, we work in old people's homes, in hospitals, hospices, all of these sort of things. It's very demanding because you've got to have musicians who are very, very well trained to manage what are you know, can be quite challenging situations, but they're fantastic. And when you go along, as I did recently in a youth at risk centre, where all these kids who, you know, probably even at this age are seen by their parents and their families as a problem and a failure, all of them working together, all of them really working closely with the people who are the staff there who normally, you know, may have problems in how you manage kids like that, and all of them actually working together, the parents being really proud of what they're doing, the kids doing things where they can express through poetry and music their feelings about their families and what's happened to them and so on, and all supporting each other so that you've created a community. You can actually see it transforming lives. And that's just one example out of the dozens and dozens. But those are the sort of things, and I find it so moving going along to all those projects. So that was something we started, I think, about three years ago, three and a half years ago. And it's a wonderful program. And something you're starting this year is the National Youth Orchestra. Explain what this is going to be. Absolutely. Well, one of the things that's interesting about the U.S. is how few things are done nationally. It's just part of the history of the country and how the country evolved. There's lots of terrific youth orchestras, you know, in different states and cities and so on. There is no National Youth Orchestra. And from the moment I arrived here, I mean, I felt that was something we needed to do. And it wasn't right at the top of the agenda. It's, it's a demanding thing to put together and quite expensive. But we felt it needs to exist for two reasons. One is bringing all the most talented young musicians together. They all inspire each other and they lift standards. It has a tremendous impact on everybody. The other piece is as an international youth ambassador for America around the world. So those were the two fundamental purposes. I mean, there are other purposes as well. I mean, we feel if you're going to create a a national youth orchestra of the best young musicians, they're 16 to 19-year-olds. And if you're going to do that, it's not just enough to have 120 really extraordinary kids having an unbelievable time working with great conductors and, you know, and obviously being a wonderful youth ambassador. It's not enough. I mean, it's really important. 
that somehow we should find ways that what they're doing they can take back out into their communities and they can make sure that a lot of other people benefit from the fact this beacon exists, this beacon of excellence. So, you know, we're looking at the whole way we can make sure that it infuses a lot more of the system. So it will be 16 to 19 year olds, it'll meet once a year, it'll have about two weeks preparation up at SUNY Purchase, um, where they'll work with the best coaches in the country, and then They'll come together as an orchestra. Then, for the first course, Valery Gergiev will join them. So, to have you know one of the world's greatest conductors will be an unbelievable experience. And then they'll work with him. And then they'll do concerts in Sumy Purchase, Washington, Moscow, St. Petersburg, and London. It'll be one of the most memorable experiences any of them will ever have. And I think also it will be the best possible youth ambassador America could have. And I remember when I was in Moscow talking to the U.S. ambassador, he said to me. This is phenomenal. This will do more for the U.S.'s relationships with Russia than almost anything I can do as ambassador. Now, he may have been exaggerating, but the point is it really mattered. And exactly the same thing was said to me by the, the Russian ambassador in Washington, that he felt it really mattered that this should happen. So each year we'll go to a different country, so it really is something that works in those terms for America and for America's relationships with the rest of the world. And then the second year, in fact, we will travel all around America because we thought we ought to introduce America to its own National Youth Orchestra. But most of the time we will be travelling internationally, just one course a year. I mean, it'll be about a one-month course, including the tour, and it will be something, firstly, those kids will never forget. It'll be one of the most important formative influences on their lives. I, I mean, I was in the UK National Youth Orchestra. I'll never forget it. I mean, it was one of the most important things that ever happened in my life. But it's the impact as well of how you all inspire each other, bringing those kids together everybody will benefit. And you've also been very eloquent about the importance of arts education and taking that link away can cause a whole wall to collapse. Well, I mean, I saw it very clearly in Britain because there was one education minister who came in and said, we've got such problems with reading, writing and arithmetic, we have to put the emphasis on that so we're going to make arts less of a priority. After two or three years, he realized that actually taking the arts away in that way, everybody was doing worse at the others, not better. It's all about the growth of people and the growth of people's minds. And, you know, and again, I always come back to the thing of the spirit of inquiry and the spirit of curiosity. It's not just about learning facts. It's about how do we grow and how do our brains grow and how do we become more interesting people. And the trouble with a lot of education is it's linear. You know, you learn and you think there's one answer. I mean, you're taught there's, there's a right answer and a wrong answer. The great thing about the arts is there are thousands of answers, and there always should be. And actually, the most interesting kids in schools are the ones who don't go for the obvious answer, who actually say, well, what about that or what about that? And very often the teaching says, no, you've got to get the right answer. And it's left brain, right brain. I mean, it, you know, the left brain is all about the linear education. And how do we actually have a balance between left brain with linear and right brain with conceptual thinking. And the most important thing about education is those things need to be in balance. And yet so much of education is linear. And again, I think the arts is an absolutely fundamental part of making sure one grows in that way too. And finally, where do you see not just Carnegie Hall, but arts in New York in the next decade? Well, I think it's always hard to see what things translate into. I mean, I always say questions are more important than answers. Now, that really lies at the root of my philosophy, which is if you ask really good questions and you explore in the right way, out of that will come great answers. I think if you look 
at anything where people are saying, I think this is going to be like this in five years, ten years' time. It never is. And the point is, anything you've planned, if it's going according to plan, and in two years' time it's just as you thought it would be, my view is you failed because that means you haven't developed the new opportunities that were there and that always will be. So I think what I'm really more interested in is the questions about how we can serve people's lives through music. What does that actually mean? How do all of us change our institutions so that instead of being perhaps about the glory of the institution, I mean, people asking the questions like, you know, what's good for the brand? What is good for making Carnegie Hall more prestigious? How can we monetize these programs? To me, those are all completely the wrong questions. Brand is never of interest. I mean, if we look, we've got the most wonderful brand, but we've only got a wonderful brand because of what we do. And if you do things absolutely superbly and you make a contribution to people's lives, your brand will always be fine. You don't get your brand right by chasing your brand. And it's the same with everything else. I mean, what I hope is that the way we're trying to approach things, which is all about how we contribute to people's lives and how you know, we do something that really matters for society and for human beings, if that, as a fundamental question, becomes the one that more arts organisations answer or try to answer, so that it's all about what we give, it's never about what we take, it's all about what we contribute, then we'll come up with wonderful answers and it'll be an amazing and really exciting future. I don't think anybody can actually predict that what that would be. If, even if seven years ago you'd asked me what Carnegie Hall would be today, I wouldn't have dreamt that we'd have been doing all the things we're doing now. And part of that is because of the possibility of the place. Part of it is because we have a phenomenal team. And, you know, and that's administration team, but it's also board and supporters. And it's a partnership. Everything's a partnership. I mean, whether it's, you know, we've talked about festivals being a partnership, the academy's the partnership with all these great partners we work with. Almost everything we do is about partnership, but most specifically, how you grow as an institution in this way is a partnership and it's a partnership between all the people who are involved in different ways with the organization and all of them asking the right questions and really challenging themselves and never being satisfied and growing in a way that is utterly compelling and that really changes society. Clive Gullinson, thank you so much. I look forward Thanks. to that. Thank you. So I. <laughs> <laughs> that was the executive and artistic director of Carnegie Hall, Clive Gillinson. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpt from Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Johann Sebastian Bach, performed by Colin Carr, from Selections, Summer 2012. Use courtesy of Creative Commons and the WFMU Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to Artworks at iTunes U. Just click on the iTunes link on our podcast page. Next week, storytelling with and without music. Singer-songwriter Josh Ritter talks about his novel, Bright's Passage. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>